1: If your roof starts to leak or your floors really squeak, you live living a money pit, money pit. If your basement needs a
0: pump or your place looks like a dump, live in a money pit, money pit. Pick up the telephone, fix up your home sweet home I call it eight eight eight
2: money pit. The money pit is presented by Owens Corning, the Angie app, LL Flooring. Craig Tool Company, Bank of America, and Total Tape. Now, here are Tom and Leslie.
3: Coast to coast and floorboards to shingles, this is the Money Pit Home Improvement Show. I'm Tom Kreitler.
1: And I'm Leslie Segretti.
3: And what are you working on this beautiful end of summer weekend? I love this time of year because, you know, most of the summer visitors to my area have left. There's still a few sticking around, but most of them have gone back to the city where they can have their busy little lives and we can kind of hang out and chill Here on the Jersey Shore without the crowd. So I like this part of the year. It's like we call it the locals summer. You have that kind of thing where you guys live. If you do, tell us about it. But most importantly, we want to hear about your projects. The projects you want to do now, the projects you're dreaming about for the days and weeks and months ahead. You know, Whether it's an inside project like a kitchen or a bathroom or fixing up your floors or an outside project like maybe building a deck. So you'll be good to go next spring give us a call. We'd love to help you get it done. That number is one 888 Pit, Or you can post your questions to moneypit.com. Hey, coming up on today's show, if you plan on doing some window shopping for windows this fall, you may find that it is one very confusing experience because you got dozens of choices. It is so easy to get lost. But there is one label that is required to be on every new window that's sold. And if you know how to read it, finding the best window becomes instantly simplified. So we'll tell you how to decode the window labels in just a bit.
1: And a firewood stack can quickly become a termite buffet if the firewood stack mixes with moisture or if those termites have access to the structures on your property. So we're going to share some tips for the best way to stack and store firewood so it's ready to deliver the most heat possible. And if you
3: think you're just about done with outdoor home improvements, well, not quite yet. There are a few things you need to do now while the weather still is a little bit warm to avoid bigger, colder headaches in the dead of winter. We'll teach you what they are in just a bit.
1: So give us a call. Let us know what you are working on this lovely fall season. Inside, outside, whatever the temperature is near you and whatever it is that you want to tackle, we can help you do that and do it right the first time. So give us a call at 888 money pit
3: 888-666-3974. Let's get to it. Leslie, who's first?
1: Sue in Rhode Island needs some help removing paint from something. What's going on?:
0: I have a, a large deck that's probably 12 by 30, and for the first couple of years, we had oil-based stain on it, and okay. then we accidentally put a latex over the stain.
3: But that didn't work out too well, considering that oil and water don't usually mix.
0: <laughs> oh, I know. I, I thought it was the right stain when I put it on, but yeah, and it's probably and we peeling ended up, up, right? It like,
3: is it peeling up like crazy right now?
0: Oh, it it was horrible. So yeah. I I power washed the heck out of it. I probably power washed it three, four, five times. I've used paint remover on it, you know, that you would use when you when you refurnish something. And I probably got about three quarters of it off. But Rest of it is not coming off,
3: so it's not coming off. There's just no way it's coming off. You've uh, scraped, you scraped it. You can't get it off even with a hand scraper, even
0: with a hand scraper.
3: All right. Well, then let's let's assume it's got good attachment to the deck, um, and now we got to get a new coating of stain on there. So, um, the most important thing you have to do right now is you have to use an oil-based uh, primer on that entire deck you got to put the primer on first, and then you can put uh, an oil-based stain on top of that. Get good adhesion. Stay in the same manufacturing family. So if you're going to use Sherwin or Ben Moore, just you know, make sure you stay within that same family of products and use the recommended primer for that type of stain. But if you've tried everything to get that old stain off and it's not coming off, then I think we can safely assume that it's, it's in for good. And you just got to get a new coat on there. But you want to prime it first because the primer is a different characteristic than the stain. And it's going to make sure you have good adhesion to that entire deck surface and stop the peeling from happening again. Does that make sense?
0: All right. Oh, that's been really helpful. I
1: can't wait to stain my deck.
3: <laughs> All right. Good luck with that project, Sue. Thanks so much for calling us at 888-MONEYPIT.
1: Isaac in Washington's on the line and has a question about radon. What can we do for you today?
0: Yeah, I have a, a slab on grade. My home is. And I, I don't have any drain tile or a sump pit or anything of the sort. I'm just wondering if radon should be an issue there or not without the drain tile.
3: Well, it's possible that radon could be a problem in a home that's built a slab on grade, but it's a lot less likely than if the house uh, was on a basement, for example. In terms of the the drain tile and the sump pit, certainly that is one source of it, but it doesn't need that to get in. So if you want to be sure, you should do it expensive home radon test you can order them online the most common of which Isaac is a type of test called charcoal adsorption ad not absorption it's an adsorption canister and typically you open this up into the lowest living space which in your case is a slab and you leave it exposed for generally 3 to 7 days or so you seal it back up send it off to a lab they'll come back with a report that will tell you what the radon level is. And it's going to be measured in picocuries per liter of air. If it's 4.0 or higher, it's an issue. If it's less, it's not an issue. So I would do a, a radon test just so you can have the comfort of knowing what your radon levels are. You might want to wait until it's a little colder out because you do have to keep the windows and doors closed except for normal entry and exit. So typically you're going to get um, higher radon uh, test results uh, when the weather gets chilly just because folks are so accustomed to kind of keeping everything closed up. Just go to Aquatrue.com. That's dot com, and enter code MONEYPIT at checkout. That's 20% off any Aquatrue water purifier when you go to Aquatrue.com and use promo code M-O-N-E-Y-P-I-T. MONEYPIT.
1: All right, now we've got Hope from Illinois on the line, who's in a super great mood about this project. What's going on? The
0: project is uh putting up a fence for our dogs uh, in a... Pretty large area at the back of the house um, that borders a creek. It's a very high creek bank. Water uh, rarely comes into the yard or anything, mm-hmm. but um, just concerned about moisture um, and and what the ground might be like underneath, and if that should affect the material that we use for the fence.
3: What are you thinking about? What kind of fence are you are you leaning towards?
0: Well, we've. Looked at everything from like w- rolls of welded wire on, on posts or uh, some sort of black wrought iron low fencing, something like three feet.
3: Okay, so in either case, you're going to have metal fence posts, not wood fence posts. Have you thought about wood fencing or are you just afraid yeah, of the water?
0: I have definitely thought of wood as well, yes.
3: Okay, so
0: well, not something the, that won't um, ruin our view.
3: Right. Okay. Hey, now that's a great point because if you want something that's almost invisible, the idea of the black fencing is definitely the way you want to go. If you have a a black fence like I often see these around pools because you know people put pool fences around because they absolutely have to and should they're not only required but they're just essential for safety, but let's face it, you spend all that money on the pool, you don't want to kind of just stare at a fence from, you know, from your house or the street. But if you use black fencing, it's almost invisible. It like melts in with the background. So I think that that's a really good choice if that is your goal. In terms of the moisture, I really don't think you have any, anything to be concerned about. If you were working with a wood fence or wood posts, I would tell you to put those posts in and don't use any concrete. Just use stone, uh, aggregate, you know, like a gray driveway gravel kind of thing, because it drains. And the post is just as solid with the stone as it is, I've found with concrete, um, but it drains very well. And it's Really locked in place well. Now, in terms of the metal post, I've not put in. Well, I put one metal fence post in around a large garden some years ago, and I think if I recall right, I used stone for that. But you're going to have to check the manufacturer's recommendation. You don't have the same issues with rot. Most of those posts are aluminum. You just don't want to make sure that the want to make sure that the post is not going to react with the concrete. And if you do decide to go with concrete and the metal post, then I would use the Quickcrete concrete product in the red bag because. Because you can pour it in dry and then kind of water the hole. So you don't have to mix it up ahead of time. You basically pour it in dry and let it sit there and then just fill the, water with, fill the hole with water. And a couple hours later, you're good to go.
0: Well, thank you so much. And I listen to you every single week. I've learned so much from you guys.
3: Oh, well, thank you so much. Good luck with the new house and call us back anytime.
1: Well, choosing the right new windows from the dozens of choices that are available today is important, but it's also super challenging. I mean, especially since every window company or salesperson that you talk to is going to say, ours is the best. So we're going to share an easy way that you can cut through the claims in today's smart spending tip presented by the Bank of America Customized Cash Rewards credit card.
3: Yep. And the solution comes in the form of a very important rating code developed by the NFRC, which stands for the National Fenestration Rating Council. If you understand this, you can quickly compare the energy performance of windows, doors, and
1: skylights. So two of the NFRC's ratings are particularly important for you to know. I'm talking about the U-factor and the solar heat gain coefficient, which you might see as SHGC. Now, if you understand what these ratings are, you can make really smart decisions when you're comparing energy-efficient replacement windows. And that can also help you save money on your heating and all of your cooling costs. So, I mean, this is a big place to look for savings.
3: Definitely. So first, let's talk about U factor. U factor measures basically how well a window prevents heat from escaping a building. Now, it's rated from 0.09 to 1.2. And the lower the U factor, the better the product is at keeping heat from escaping. So basically, if you're looking at two windows and you know what the U factor is, you know, the lower numbers, the better window. It's easy, right? Now, solar heat gain coefficient, a little bit different, tells us how effectively the window blocks the sun's solar radiation and heat, and it's rated on a scale of one to zero. And again, the lower the number, the better the window is at blocking that unwanted heat from the sun.
1: Now, there's also two other ratings that are a part of the NFRC. First is visible transmittance, which means how much light is going to get through the window. And the other is condensation resistance, which tells you how good a window is at keeping moisture from forming on the inside or between the panes. And then there's air leakage, which is going to tell you how good that window is at keeping out the drafts. I mean, this is all super information to know.
3: Yeah, and it's all contained in one very simple label, the NFRC label. It's on each and every window. So make sure you refer to that sticker when you're shopping for windows, and it is definitely the most independent and accurate information that you will find.
1: And that's today's smart spending tip presented by the Bank of America Customized Cash Rewards Credit Card.
3: Apply for yours at com slash more rewarding.
1: Abraham in New Jersey's on the line looking to vent an attic. What's going on there?
2: Okay, I basically have a regular home it's a colonial and the attic is a rough attic with spray foam insulation there's zero ventilation in the attic and the second floor has central air so i would like to know two questions would i be saving on air conditioning if i would vent the attic there's no ceiling fan nothing if i would put in either a attic fan or a window exhaust fan and also currently the attic has an entrance door a heavy door leading to the attic, would it save me the air conditioning to leave that engine store open, thereby allowing the hot air to enter the attic and leave with an exhaust fan? Or that's something I should not be doing.
3: So, Abraham, that's a great question. And if you told me that your attic was, was uh, insulated with fiberglass insulation, as most are typically we would talk about what kind of ventilation you'll need. But you said your attic was insulated with spray foam. So is the spray foam up on the underside of the roof rafters as well as across the floor? Describe it to me.
2: Not on the floor. The floor just has regular boards between the second floor and the attic. But all all the walls and the, you know, and the
3: roof all have... So what you have, Abraham, and and it's actually the same kind of um, insulation setup that I have. It's called a conditioned attic. In other words, the attic itself uh, is conditioned and it does not need ventilation. So, no, you do not need to vent that. It's actually pretty efficient, right, the way it is. Now, you mentioned that there was a door uh, between those two spaces. If that door uh, tends to get a little warm or the wall... Where the ceiling tends to get a little warm, you could add some additional insulation there. Uh, In my case, I actually had an older house. So my um, attic uh, floor slash second floor ceiling um, already had fiberglass in it. We left that there, but then we spray foamed the underside of the roof rafters. And, uh, and the gable walls. And it's amazing. When we go up in our attic, it's practically the same temperature as the rest of the house. It's just done so well. So you do not need to ventilate an attic that was uh, sprayed with foam because it's not the type of attic that needs to be vented.
2: Yeah, because when I go up to my attic, it is extremely hot. I, don't, I never measure with a the thermometer how much warmer it is. So that's why I was wondering if that's going to warm up the second floor, requiring me more air conditioning for the second floor. So I was thinking of ventilating the attic to cool off the attic.
3: I think that if it was done right, you don't need to vent it. Um, how long ago was the spray foam done, and, and and who did it?
2: It was done locally, and it was within the past within the past year. It's a new home
3: oh really oh it 's brand new within the past year, yeah, I wonder if they put enough insulation in there because the insulation should be keeping that heat on the outside and the and the air conditioning or the the internal sort of ambient temperature of the house should be keeping it pretty comfortable on the inside um, I, I wonder if you have enough insulation there, and um, I have a suggestion for you that you speak with another spray foam manufacturer spray foam. Uh, contractor aside from the one that did it and kind of have an opinion as to whether or not there's enough insulation there for your part of the the country. I think that will actually uh, make a lot of sense.
2: Okay, thank you so much.
1: Judith in Arkansas is on the line and needs some help with some brickwork. What's going on?
0: Well, we've got a little crack, and it's going up the wall, and um, we uh, don't know exactly what's going on. We'd like to just repair it and not rebrick the whole side of the house. Doesn't seem to be a foundation issue, and I say that because there's not any stretch cracks on the inside uh, anywhere.
1: So the crack that you're seeing is on the brick itself, within the brick, or in the mortar? It
0: starts in the mortar, but then it crosses the brick.
3: Is it surrounding a window?
0: Let me look, because I'm walking out here to look at it. No, there (laughs) is no window on this side of
3: the house. And you've never seen a crack? Is this brand new? Like, how new are we
0: talking about? We bought this house in 2008, right before they gave the the tax credit that uh, you didn't have to pay back. We got the one that you had to pay back.
3: (laughs) Okay. So it's new since 2008? Right. Look, there could be a lot of reasons that that's happening, and it doesn't necessarily mean you have a problem with your foundation. I mean, it could be a a poor drainage condition around the house that's making it cause more movement. What I would do is unless it's absolutely active, means it's, it's continuing to grow, I would simply seal it. I would choose a silicone sealant that would closely mimic the color of the brick and the mortar, and I would seal it because the more water you let get in there, the faster it's going to freeze and break and expand and get worse. Uh, almost all, you know, brick homes and, and masonry foundations have some kind of crack in them, so it's not unusual. But I would seal it and then I would monitor it. And if you think it's continuing to grow, at that point I would have either a professional home inspector or a structural engineer look at it. Okay.
0: Okay. All right. Thank you so much.
3: We get emails. You think, oh, your homes must be beautiful. They must be perfect. Nothing is ever wrong. Well, we had a really weird problem that impacted this show over the last week or so. And what happened was Leslie and I are not together when we do the show. She has a studio. I have a studio. And in her home studio, when she dialed in one day, we got the worst static ever. Just terrible static. Horrible sound. It was fine earlier It just got awful. And we were checking everything. We were looking everywhere to try to figure this out. We're trying different microphones, different cables, different computers. We're moving around the house.
1: You guys had me sitting in a closet.
3: (laughs) We did. We (laughs) tried everything. It's a really weird thing to, to track down. And then finally we said, Hey, we can turn your microphone into a kind of like a Geiger counter by having you walk around the house with it and see if we could figure out where the static gets worse. So you did that and it didn't get worse. It was, I mean, it was as worse as it ever was, but it didn't get any better. And then you had a great suggestion to say, well, let me go outside. And why don't you take it from there? Tell, tell everybody what I happened.
1: mean, I was kind of suggesting to record the show from outside, knowing that that was yeah, a this terrible was a nice day. idea. But I was like, well, <laughs> uh, let me try outside because I don't know where else to go. Keep in mind, guys, I live in the tiniest house ever. And I was like, well, now I'm here and I have nowhere else to go. So I went outside and I started walking around. And when I got to the side of the house where the power line was coming from the pole to the house and then going into the house for the, you know, fuse panel. And all of a sudden, the microphone was just like buzzing like crazy. And I mean, this isn't something it was like a you Geiger can hear. Counter went off, right? Yeah, it's not something you can hear with the ear, but with my headphones on and my microphone. I mean, it was loud and crazy. And I was tracking it from the line that came from the pole to the house. It got worse as I got towards the you know the exterior of the house where the box was. And so I said, "All right, let's call PSENG, who's my you know electric provider." And they said, OK, uh, you know, this I don't know if it's something we can fix. This sounds like maybe it's a uh, phone problem. I'm like, it's not a phone problem. I literally <laughs> exactly we had an engineer and I walked around. So they sent the nicest guy today, this guy, Dennis, and he came to the house and he was like, I know exactly what the problem is. He's like most time when there's interference, it's ground or a neutral or an insulation issue. He's like, I'm going to get on the pole. He's like, you got vines all over there. I'm going to take it all apart. I'm going to change whatever I need to. Turns out. All of the insulation everywhere had just worn away. And to the eye hook where the wires came to the house, the insulative caps that would be on that sort of like uh, threaded rod, gone. There was one point where the line coming from the pole had a splice in it. Everything was just worn out, not grounded, totally not neutral. He ran a new line from the pole to the house. I mean, he was here for hours. And then they did a whole bunch of landscaping and cleaned up everything that was touching anything. And now it is silent.
3: Excellent work by the folks at PSENG. and And, you know, Jim, the engineer, and I had said it was a ground problem, but we couldn't figure out where the ground problem was happening.
1: I mean, I changed all the outlets in everything. the basement. I changed yeah, everything. everything. <laughs>
3: So, yeah, so we don't always have a perfect house, but uh, fortunately we got to the bottom of it and we are back on the air and you sound better than ever. Thank you, sir. And Leslie, you can come out of the closet now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's nice to be back at my desk. Charlie in Illinois is on the line with some questions about water heating. What's going on? Well, we have
3: a situation where we have a large spa tub in our master bedroom, which is on one end of the house, and we have two large standard tank water heaters completely on the other end of the house, too, so that we'll get enough hot water to fill up the spot up. And um, we also are, are the people that go to uh, Florida for three or four months during the winter. Okay. So I'm wondering with the combination of those things, if we would be better off going to a tankless
2: hot water heater, and if that may save us some money.
3: Well, I think that a tankless water heater has a lot of benefits. Uh, Cost savings may or may not be one of them, depending on how much you're spending for those two water heaters that you have, plus all of the downtime when they are actually heating water that you don't need it. Uh, It can be sized so that it can certainly supply enough hot water for everything that you have described. And, of course, the nice thing about a tankless water heater is it works on demand. Now, some of the more modern tankless water heaters also have the capability to kind of basically plug into a recirculating loop so that you mentioned that one bath is at the far end of the house. It can be set up so there always is some hot water basically circulating to that bath in advance of when you need it. And what that means is when you hop in the shower first thing in the morning, you have hot water pretty quickly rather than waiting for the water to make the long journey from uh, the water heater location to the bathroom. And that can all be set up on timers so that the water is being heated only essentially when you need it. So I do think that if you're ready to make that upgrade, a tankless water heater is definitely uh, the best way to go. It's also possible to put another water heater in closer to them, but I just don't think it's worth it given everything you've described. I would suggest that when you're ready, replace both of those tank water heaters with one single properly designed tankless water heater, and I think you'll be very happy with the result. That sounds great.
1: Well, if you have a fireplace or a wood-burning stove, storing that firewood properly is really important. So we're going to share some tips to do just that in today's DIY Project Highlight presented by Craig Tool.
3: So when you store firewood, providing for good air circulation and safety are, are really key. If you have excess moisture, and if you also combine that with easy access to structures, guess what? A firewood stack becomes a termite buffet. So start by finding a dry, safe home for it, whether it's an open-air woodshed or a freestanding stack. Now, the goal here is to keep firewood out of contact with the ground and avoid stationing it against the exterior wall because, of course, as we said before, moisture develops, termites develop, and you get yourself into a real mess.
1: Yeah. Now, one tip here, guys, is to always cut the firewood to the longest length that you need, which is going to make it a lot easier to store. And then you want to pack it snugly, but with enough space so you're allowing airflow. And that's going to discourage the development of mold and mildew. And four feet is about the maximum height that your stack should reach without side supports. Then you've got to shield that top few layers with a waterproof cover and you need to adjust it as you remove the fuel for your indoor warmth. Now, if you don't have a firewood rack, Craig Tool has Project plans for a beautiful outdoor firewood storage rack that's great for beginners. I mean, it's a fun build. It uses pocket hole joinery and simple cuts. So it really is the perfect project for you new DIYers out there.
3: And once you're ready to bring that firewood inside, there's also a really great plan for an indoor firewood storage rack. And that project features a lower area that holds the logs really securely and an upper area, which is super handy for keeping kindling. Plus, this is a really really easy project to do. You can build one in just a couple of hours. You only need four boards, a couple of tools, and a Craig jig. Now, the complete project plans for both are on craigtool.com. Just click on projects and plans.
1: And that's today's DIY project highlight presented by the Craig Pocket Hole Jig 520 Pro, making it easy for anyone to make strong pocket hole joints for all sorts of projects and using a variety of materials.
3: Available nationwide at Home Depot, Lowe's, and other home centers, woodworking, and hardware stores. Learn more at CraigTool.com. That's K-R-E-G-Tool.com. Well, temperatures are okay now, but in a few months, you will want nothing less than to bundle up, head outdoors, and deal with a home improvement problem in the dead of winter. So, if you tackle a few easy projects today, this can possibly save you hours outside when the big chills hit.
1: Yeah, you know, water leak emergencies are common when it's cold, so now's the time to locate and label those important water valves, including the main water valve, the water heater valve, the hose and ice maker valves. If you know where these are and what they do, this could spare you major damage and hassles if cold weather strikes.
3: And after that first big fall rainstorm this fall, grab a flashlight and head into your attic. You want to inspect areas around chimney and plumbing vent pipes and also places where different sections of roof come together because this is where the leaks can show up. Then grab some binoculars, or if you don't have them, grab a camera with, say, a zoom lens on it and inspect those areas from the outside, scanning also for missing shingles and loose flashing that need to be replaced. It's a really good time to make sure that roof is totally zipped up for the rough weather ahead.
1: And securing a handrail today while it's nice out, I mean, that could really mean avoiding an emergency in the wintertime. So you want to make sure that all inside and outside handrails are secure and you want to repair loose railings, any posts, spindles, any things that need some adjusting, do so. Make it nice, tight, and secure. Everything's got to be extra sturdy when those conditions are icy.
3: And finally, conking your chimney crown. So what does that mean? Well, the chimney crown is the area of cement between the outside of the chimney and the chimney liner. And it will get loose, it will crack, and it does need to be caulked from time to time. So do that now when it's easy to get up there. I'm assuming you like to do ladder work. If not, have somebody else do it for you. But if you caulk that now, it will avoid possible breakage of chimney bricks and other destruction that happens when water gets in there and freezes and pops and expands and causes all sorts of damage as well as leaks. So caulk that chimney crown right now and you will be sealed and secure for that icy weather ahead.
1: Ken might have an issue with a tree causing some problems with the foundation. What's going on?
0: Well, I've got a tree or either that or a very stubborn big weed that is growing right next to my foundation.
3: Now, does it appear to be causing any issues, or are you not seeing any cracks in the foundation, are you?
0: Not yet, because it's probably about the size of maybe between a quarter and a half a dollar.
3: Yeah, this is kind of a nuisance right now, and as long as it's not like, uh, you know, part of your prized tree collection, I I would not let it continue to grow uh, that close to the foundation. I I would cut it away. I mean, a lot of folks are concerned about the impact of roots on foundations, and For the level of concern, the times I actually find scenarios where roots have actually impacted a foundation are rare. So it's nothing to panic over, but it's not wise to allow uh, anything like that to grow that close to the foundation, especially at this early stage. So I would definitely cut it back. I mean, every time I cut it back, it just keeps growing. So I want to somehow get rid of it, and I don't know how to actually kill it. So can't you just dig it out? Well, you know what, I would, but we just had a termite treatment around there, and they told me not oh, to disturb I get the it. Yeah, the, the, you don't the want to dirt. disturb the, the the treatment chemicals. Yeah, right. Well, I tell you what, I think that if you were to if you were to dig carefully around it and just cut it down a little surface a little bit, you probably wouldn't have much effect on on those treatment chemicals. On the treatment, okay. Well, I might. Yeah, I just wouldn't. I wouldn't pull dirt out, and you know, and. and put in fresh or anything like that, I would just try to put put back what I took out. Okay. I really don't think it's going to affect you. Okay. Well, we'll give that a try.
1: Well, Jacqueline has a relatively new dryer, and she says it's got a short vent because the dryer sits against an outside wall, which is right above the wood deck. She says the lint makes a mess where we eat and entertain. I thought about putting an extension on the vent to direct it under the deck, but I would need to use a 90-degree bend and run it about eight feet. What are your thoughts on that? First
3: of all, make sure your lint filter is in place and working because that will slow down how much lint gets out of there. But I don't think that uh, running it under the deck is a bad idea if you only have one 90-degree bend. You know, typically, uh, dryer exhaust ducts make a lot more bends than that on the way outside of the house. So I think doing that is just fine. We know that uh, every 90-degree bend is essentially equal to about 20-foot of straight run in terms of its resistance. But if you have one 90-degree and you run it out, I would strap it up the other side of the deck so it's nice and secure. I think that's absolutely fine. And there's a big advantage to having a short run of a dryer exhaust duct like that because your clothes dry a lot quicker. You know, when we moved our dryer from uh, one area to another, it basically went right outside. And, man, it made a big difference in how quickly we got those dry clothes right out.
1: You know, I think another thing, since we're talking about dryer vents, you want to make sure that you clean them. I'm talking about from that backside of the dryer to the exterior of the house. You can get lint built up in there, which is super flammable, and you don't want any accidents thinking everything's okay when it's not. So make sure you get some sort of lint cleaner. You can hire a service for them, anything. Just make sure every year or other year you clean out that dryer vent.
3: Well, if there's one thing that most home design projects have in common, it's leftover paint. But don't throw it out or stash it in your garbage. You can put that leftover paint to good use instead. Leslie has tips on how to do just that in today's edition of Leslie's Last Word. Leslie?
1: Yeah, you know, that leftover paint can feel like a headache when every other aspect of that project is done, but with a little bit of imagination and some creative flair, you can use those paint leftovers to give your home extra appeal, and you can have a lot of fun in the process. So if you're looking for those perfect accessories for your freshly painted room, why not add a little of that leftover wall paint to say canisters or vases, a planter, a flower pot? It's just kind of that little touch of that same color that can kind of pull that room together. And you can paint them in one solid color, or you can embellish them with a pattern. I mean, anything. Just sort of look online for inspiration and bring that color in in just a little bit that way. Or maybe you're thinking that you want to tie that freshly painted room to the rest of the house. So you can use some leftover paint to update baseboard trim, maybe a door in another room, or to breathe new life into a worn-out dresser, a rocking chair, a stool. I mean, if you don't like the finish of the paint that you have to put on a piece of furniture, say it, does, it works great on the wall but not great for a dresser, you can then add a top coat to it to give you the sheen that you're looking for. So don't be afraid because the paint not, might not be the same sheen that you're looking for. Now, you can also pick up an inexpensive canvas from any art supply store and then create your own artwork using your home's design palette. The other thing that I love, if you've got built-ins or bookshelves or anything around the house, painting the interiors really is a great trend that's sticking around and you can add a coat of paint to the recess portion of those built-ins it's going to give you a nice twist you just want to make sure that you let it totally dry before you put those books and knickknacks back into place
3: excellent advice this is the money pit home improvement show coming up next time in the program when you guys wake up each morning you head to the bathroom you take a look at that mirrored reflection of yourself and you think oh my god i don't want to start the day looking that way Well, it might not be you. It might be the lighting. If the bed lighting is in place, it doesn't show your best size. It doesn't show anything. We're going to share tips on how to achieve brilliant bathroom lighting on the very next edition of The Money Pit. I'm Tom Kreitler.
1: And I'm Leslie Segretti.
3: Remember, you can do it yourself. But you don't
1: have to do it alone. You live in a Money
0: Pit.